Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to cover verses 11 through 23. We are on the second missionary journey. Paul, having picked Timothy up at Lystra and having picked up Luke at Troas, probably, and having set out on the second journey from Antioch of Syria with Silas, Paul, accompanied with three people, three of his missionary buddies, they set out from Troas. Remember, Paul had a vision at night when he saw the Macedonian call, a man saying, come on, come on over here to Macedonia. And so he crossed the Hellspont from Troas, where ancient Troy was, and he is now on the Thracian coast in the northern Aegean. So we start out in verse 11, then setting sail from Troas, we, that's Paul, Silas, and Luke and uh, Timothy and Luke, they ran a, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the reason it says we there is because Luke is writing the, the account in Acts, and so he includes himself in the description of the apostles. He says we. We ran a straight course to Samothrace, or as the Greeks like to say, Samothraki, but Samothrace the next day to Neapolis. Now, Samothrace is the famous island in the northern Aegean where the winged victory of Samothrace was found, that famous piece of sculpture that I learned about in high school and in college. I actually saw it at the Louvre Museum in Paris. It's one of the world's most famous pieces of sculpture. Well, that's where this is. It's an island, a big island in the north of the Aegean. So, of course, they're island hopping, as they did back then. They went to Samothrace. And the next day they went to Neapolis, which was a port, just a, a port on the seacoast of the Aegean, just a few miles from Philippi, which is a little bit further inland. And, of course, that's where we're heading for is Philippi, where most of the ministry took place. Samothrace and Neapolis are just stops on the way. Samothrace was a convenient place for boats to anchor rather than risk sailing at night, as the NIV Study Bible says. In later church history, there is no church recorded as being there. John Gill says Paul and his company did not preach there. Then they went to Neapolis, the seaport. Philippi was 10 miles away from that seaport, according to the NIV Study Bible. Neapolis is still there. It's called Kavala now in modern Greece. And there is also no account of Paul and his company preaching there. But there was a church there later, according to church history. Somehow it got there. And Neapolis was about 65 miles from Samothrace, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Now, we see by the statement that it was the next day that they reached Neapolis. It took two days to get from Troas to Philippi. But going the other way, it took five days. This was after the third journey. We read in Acts 20, verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas. Well, some people might quibble and say, oh, there's a mistake here. Why the difference? Well, there's probably a good reason for the difference in time, according to Jameson Fawcett Brown, because there was a strong wind from the south of the southeast on that Acts 20, verse 6 trip from Philippi back to Troas. Strong wind coming from the south of the southeast, which overcame the strong current that was running in the opposite direction. So winds and currents can affect travel time. But anyway, that's a small point. We now go to verse 12 in Acts 16, and from there to Philippi, from where to Philippi? From Neapolis, the port city. We're now on the Thracian coast now, which is the coast of the northern Aegean. If you look at the Aegean Sea like a clock, 12 o'clock high and right around there, that's Thrace. If you run further north from Thrace, you end up going up the Propontis 
up to Byzantium or Constantinople, present-day Istanbul. That's the area of Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria. Or you're still looking at the Aegean Sea and you're going back toward 11 o'clock and 10 o'clock. That's Macedonia. You keep going. You end up in Thessaly, which is a northern province of Greece, and then you get to Greece proper. Now, today, the modern state of Greece owns all that right up to Bulgaria, up in Thrace. They own parts of Thrace and Macedon and Greece. But back then, it wasn't that way. Greeks didn't own all that. So we go to verse 12, and from there they went to Philippi. From where? From Neapolis, the port city, to Philippi, about 10 miles inland, a Roman colony, which is a leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for a number of days. Now, Philippi was a city that was named after Philip II, the famous father of Alexander the Great. He had conquered it when he was in charge of Macedon, and he went out there and he took that independent city and made it his own, renamed it after himself. Now, many retired legionnaires from the Roman army had settled there, according to the NIV Study Bible. There were very few Jews living there, and there was lots of gold found in the area. This is according to John Gill. The NIV Study Bible says there were few Jews living there. And Philippi is famous in Roman history. If you know your Roman history, the famous Battle of Philippi. This is when Augustus Caesar, Octavius, and Mark Antony, the second triumvirate, beat Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Caesar, they chased them down over there to Philippi. October the 3rd, Cassius kills himself because he thought his fellow conspirator Brutus had been defeated in battle. He believed the wrong rumor, so he kills himself on October the 3rd. And then they had another battle 20 days later on October the 23rd, and Octavius and Mark Antony beat Brutus, and then Brutus kills himself. <laughs> so the Two assassins of Caesar killed themselves, and it all happened at Philippi. So Philippi is sort of a famous place. It was a Roman colony, which means because it was a colony, it was independent of Roman administration, sort of self-governing place. And the Roman colony was planted by Julius Caesar. The city was founded by Philip II, father of Alexander the Great, but when it became a Roman colony, Julius Caesar made it such. Now, there's a small problem here. Philippi is called a leading city of that district of Macedonia. Some translations translate it as the leading city, which is a problem. The NIV does it that way, the leading city in Macedonia, and that makes it sound like it's the top government, the the capital of that district, which it was not. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, not Philippi. Well, there's some options to solve this problem. It's a minor problem. First of all, you could say, well, Macedonia had four districts, and Philippi was the leading city of one of the districts, not the whole area of Macedonia, but just one of the districts. That doesn't work, as the NIV Study Bible points out, because Philippi's district was headed by Amphipolis, which was a city further on on to the west a little bit. And so we cannot say that Philippi is the leading district of the fourth part of Macedonia, the, the, the region of Macedonia in which Philippi was located. We can't say Philippi was the leading city of that district because Amphipolis was. Now, Adam Clark says, well, yeah, but maybe Amphipolis, it was named that 220 years earlier, but by the time of the big battles there where between Brutus and Cassius and Mark Anthony and Octavian, by the time of the famous Battle of Philippi, things might have changed. Since Octavian won the whole Roman Empire there, maybe Philippi might have become important, and now maybe the Romans say, now Philippi is the capital, not Amphipolis. Well, that's 
real, that's a lot of reconciling there. It just makes it easier to translate it as which a leading city of the district. That's how the Homer Christian Study Bible translates it. If you know anything about Greek articles, a lot of times Greek articles don't come out as the in English. Homer Christian Study Bible says a leading city, and it could be leading commercially. In other words, Luke wasn't talking governmentally. He was talking commercially. That's why it's a leading city. It could best be a leading city geographically, as the NIV Study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest, because Philippi was the first city on the border. As you're going in from Thrace into Macedonia, Philippi was the first city, so you say it was a leading city. It was the lead city, if you will, of that district. I don't think that's a good reconciliation. I just think it's a, it was a leading city commercially in the Roman district of Macedonia. And Paul is, and the missionary band stayed there. We stayed in that city for a number of days. Now, what did they do there during that time, those, that number of days in Philippi? Well, did they preach successfully? John Gill denies that. I don't know why, but he does. John Gill says that the apostles didn't do anything because they had no opportunity, which must have been a great trial to their faith. They had just had that great vision in Troas, and they had traveled so far, and they hung around doing nothing. I don't know if he's right about that or not. Speculation. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculating they were just waiting around until the Sabbath came around because that was their custom to go to the synagogues first. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate it must have been several weeks. I don't know. The synagogues met every Saturday, so I, I don't know. And, I, and, and if you look at what happened in Philippi, you got the conversion of Lydia, which we'll talk about in a minute. And next audio, we'll talk about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. They did a lot of stuff in Philippi. I don't know why. Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate they were sitting on their thumbs, twirling, sitting on their behinds, twirling their thumbs while they're there in Philippi. I really don't think that's what happened. We go down to Acts 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river. And again, Sabbath day, they always, they focused on that day because that's when people got together to pray. Now, they didn't have a synagogue in Philippi. We'll talk about that in a minute. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. There were so few Jews in Philippi, there was no synagogue there, as the NIV Study Bible and John Gill point out. Might be because the Roman government, a Roman colony, would not allow a synagogue. Who knows? But at any rate, they went by the river where there was a place of prayer. Adam Clark speculates this was a large uncovered building like an amphitheater. In other words, with stone seats, and it was built there for the specific purpose of people going down there and praying. Clark says the Jews typically had this sort of building by riversides and seasides. Well, that could be. What's the river? The NIV Study Bible says it's the Gangites River, and I don't know that river. It must be a small one. It doesn't show up on the Bible.hub, Bible Hub map, but it was a, a river. John Gill says it was the Strymon River, which is further to the west. Famous river with a bunch of gold on that river ran into Amphipolis. I don't think so. It's too far away, it looks like to me, on the map. I don't think they would go that far from Philippi in order to pray. Now, these places of prayer that the Jews had, or that the God-fearers had, and they weren't necessarily Jews, could have been Gentiles who were fearing God in some way, they were customarily located near places of running water, as the NIV Study Bible and John Gill point out. Why? Well, it's easier to do ceremonial washings there if you got water. It could have helped in their meditation. John Gill points out Isaac used to go into the fields to meditate, and so these people wanting to pray could have wanted to go by the rustling brook where things 
were peaceful so that they could pray. Who knows? At any rate, that's where they were. Now, these women that were there, they ran into some women. Now, who were they? Were they Jews or were they Gentiles? Well, I would think since they were going down there to pray, they were probably, that you would think they were Jews, but there were few Jews in the city, and they could have been Gentile God-fearers, proselytes of the gate. So John Gill says they're probably Jewish, but Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Who knows? But at any rate, we do know this. The first fruits of Europe were of the fairer sex. Just like Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus resurrected, she was a woman, so the first, at least the first recorded convert of somebody in Europe was a woman, namely Lydia, which we'll get to in a minute. Now the apostles go up to him and spoke to him before they had started praying. I, I don't know what the custom was back then, but you, here you got four guys who were single, or at least they're apart from their wives. I think they were all single. You know, I don't know if they were single or not. I ought to be careful. At least their wives weren't with them, let's put it that way. And they show up with a bunch of women by themselves. Well, I guess people don't start screaming and hollering. I guess they didn't have a bunch of sexual assault back then because the women didn't act afraid at all. And there was no impropriety, no, no question of that. We go to verse 14 in Acts 16. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. Now, this woman was a businesswoman. She was selling purple cloth. Uh, she was from Thyatira, which was a city in Asia Minor. If you look at the western province of the Anatolian landmass over there, the Roman western province was called Asia, and all seven churches of the book of Revelation are in that Asian province, and Thyatira is one of them, 20 miles south of Pergamum, if you'll look at the map. So she's come over from Asia Minor, crossed on over the Aegean, and she's in Philippi selling purple cloth. Her name was Lydia. She might have been named after where she was from because Lydia, Sardis was the capital of Lydia. Lydia was the ancient kingdom in the 6th century or so B.C. Croesus, the famous richest man in the world, was king of Lydia. It was conquered by the Medes eventually in the mid-6th century. And that was the famous area, Lydia. Everybody knew about Lydia. Maybe she got her name because she was from Lydia because that's where Thyatira was from. Located, it's not certain whether she was Jewish or Gentile, John Gill says, and it's not single if she was single or was she married or was she widowed. Now, if she was married, it was strange that her husband wasn't mentioned as involved in the trade. So I suspect, now she could have left her husband back in Thyatira, or it could be she's widowed, or it could be she's single. Now, you might say, well, it mentions her household in verse 15. In the next verse, she and her household were baptized well, household doesn't necessarily mean family members. It could mean servants, too. So that doesn't prove whether she was married or not. So we don't know a lot about Lydia, except she was the first convert in Europe. Now, the interesting thing about where Lydia was from, Thyatira, is that, as I said, it's in Asia, on the, on the, in the Asian, Roman Asian province over on Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, across the Aegean. Thyatira was famous for its dyeing works, especially for royal purple. Royal purple is kind of a crimson-looking purple, deep red, purplish red. The NIV Study Bible points that out, and, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Thyatira inherited the reputation of the citizens of Tyre because Tyre was very famous for selling purple dye. It came from the secretions of a certain fish that was found there in the Mediterranean, and apparently the business went from Tyre to Thyatira as the reputation of this famous purple dye was from there, and so she probably 
collected the purple dye either from other from wholesalers maybe or maybe she made the stuff herself in Thyatira I don't know when she carried over to Philippi to find a market over there Philippi was on a trade route if a road that ran straight west across the Macedonian peninsula over there into the Adriatic and so you could trade with Rome so I suspect that that might have had something to do with it because Philippi was a leading commercial city and that's what she was there for but she wasn't all business she worshiped God because she came down with people to worship God at the place of prayer. The NIV Study Bible says that Lydia believed in the true God and followed the moral teachings of Scripture, but she had not become a full convert to Judaism. John Gill says but she might have been a proselyte, however, a proselyte of the gate. We don't know. Now, the real key point of this verse is the last part of the verse, which says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. It does not say Lydia opened her heart and invited Jesus in. Now, that's the way we, Arminian-influenced evangelicals, would say it, would we not? I opened my heart to receive Jesus. But the scripture, the inspired scripture says, the Lord opened her heart. I will let you ponder that little theological problem. It's not a problem for me, but if you're an Arminian, you might want to might want to consider it because that's a problem for your theology. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, quote, The inclination of the heart towards the truth originates not in the will of man. Ooh, irresistible grace. The Lord saves us first, and then we respond to that faith that he implants. All right, we'll leave that little point of theology and go to verse 15 in Acts 16. After she, that's Lydia, and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer, a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, she was probably baptized right there in the river next to the place of prayer where they were. I assume it was by immersion, since that's what the word baptized means, by immersion. However, some people like to point out that her household was baptized. And her household included babies, and babies cannot be immersed, so they must be sprinkled. Well, if you believe in infant baptism, and I hope you don't, but if you do, this is not a good place for you to argue infant baptism. First of all, as, as I said earlier, household can easily mean your servants, her fellow business companions that she brought from Thyatira over to Philippi. So... The household would not, it means could mean service as well as family members. And even if you say it means family members, the family members might not have included babies. How do you know that? That's just a speculation. And if it did include little kids and children, why would she have brought them all the way over from Thyatira? That's a long, arduous, dangerous trip to be carrying kids with you. Unfortunately, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown disagree with me on this point. What I just told you is John Gill's reasoning, and I think it's reasonable. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, however, say, quote, whether it included children, whether the household included children, also in that case baptized, is not explicitly stated, but the presumption, as in other cases of household baptism, is that it did. Well, I don't make that assumption, presumption at all. That's what I think it is, is a presumption, an assumption of facts that aren't stated. At any rate, this household baptism of Lydia's is the first time that baptism is mentioned in connection with the labors of Paul. So, well, I'm sure Paul did other baptisms too, but this is the first one that's mentioned. Now, notice that Lydia says to the disciples, to the apostles, if you consider me a believer in the Lord. That seems kind of diffident, kind of shy. Well, of course they well, why, of course they consider her a believer. They just baptized her. Why would they not consider her a believer? 
I would tend to want to say there, since you consider me a believer in the Lord, but that's kind of presumptuous. And by the way, the way you translate the Greek, I, I, a little tiny bit of Greek, I know I remember constantly running into this problem. How do you translate it? Is it if or since? Well, I looked at all the English translations, a ton of them, and they all say if. So we'll assume that it's if, and so she's being a little bit shy. She's being very little bit modest, and she says, would you like to come stay at my house? Now, I'm thinking she might have been a little bit modest because she's asking a bunch of single men, four of them, to stay at her house. Well, and she's single, or her, at least her husband's not around. Ooh, does that violate the Billy Graham rule or what? Now, she might have had some other servants with her. Those servants very well could have been female. That makes the violation even worse. There's a, probably enough women there for all the men to enjoy themselves. If skeptics or people who want to trash the faith could have said, but she did it anyway, and it said she persuaded the disciples, the apostles, which sounded like they weren't exactly open to the idea at first. Now, I don't know. I'm just speculating. I have no idea whether they thought this might have looked improper or not. But they went, so they must not have thought it was improper. At the end of the day, as they contemplated it, Adam Clark says that Lydia was trying to be so modest here about if you consider me a believer. She was trying to reassure Paul that she would not discredit the ministry by her fickleness or her superficiality. In other words, you know, I, I profess that I believe in Jesus, but I'm just a baby Christian, and I might not be strong, and I might fall away later on, and, and, and then it would, that would bring disrepute on the ministry. I think that's what she's talking about, I think, and I think that's why she was arguing that way. But at any rate, she sounded very modest and unassuming to me, and the apostles took her up on it. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that that word persuaded, that the apostles were persuaded to stay at Lydia's house, makes it sound like the apostles were reluctant. And I speculate, well, maybe it's because it was a seeming lack of propriety, because I don't know that culture back then. People might not have thought a thing about it. I know there's a lot of times in China where housing is very, very tight, places are small, and the people don't have money. I can't tell you how many times where they were perfectly innocent, platonic situations where members of the opposite sex were in situations where in America, in Christian America, not in the typical pagan America, but amongst Christians in America, we would say, uh-uh, you ain't hadn't ought to be doing that. And I finally, you know, it takes a hard time to get used to other people's culture. I don't know what the culture was back then about that. But at any rate, they went to her house. We go to verse 16. Once as we were on our way to prayer, and it sounds like they were going back to that same praying place by the river Gangites, as they were on their way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. As the King James has it, a spirit of divination. I like that translation better. Had a spirit of prediction. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible. She made a large profit for her answers for her owners by fortune telling. Now, this spirit of prediction in the Greek is interesting. It's pneuma puthonos, which means a python spirit. A python spirit. What does that mean? Well, what I'm going to tell you here comes from the NIV study Bible with some help from Clark and Gill. It's kind of interesting. You know the great oracle at Delphi, or Delphi, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Very famous. I mean, kings went there all the time to find out, should we embark upon this battle or should we not? That kind of thing. Now, I've been there. The ruins are still there. And they had a hole where gases came up. And this, these gases came up. Uh, and they were supposed to be the word, somehow convey the will of Apollo, who was the special god of that shrine. And somehow there was a python snake there that was associated with this gas that came up through the rocks. 
And so pretty soon they started calling the priestesses, priestesses there at Delphi. They started calling them Pythia, the Pythia, the priestesses. It comes from a python snake. Now what happened is this gas came up is the priestesses were taken over and they spoke not like New Testament prophets who the spirit of the prophets was subject to the prophets and not with these Pythia. These priestesses of the Oracle of Delphi spoke involuntarily and in fact they were called ventriloquists according to, to the NIV study Bible. Why? Well, let me read you a quote from Adam Clark. As oftentimes the priestesses of this god, that's Apollo, became greatly agitated and gave answers apparently from their bellies with their mouths remained while when their mouths remained closed. So Python was applied to the ventriloquist, Clark says. So they had they were famous for prophesying with their mouth closed, and that's eventually where we got the term somehow the term ventriloquist came from that. Now John Gill has another interesting comment on this. He says, quote, these Python, these priestesses at Delphi were people that priestesses that spoke out of their armholes. Ventriloquists were people who spoke out of their armholes. And I don't know what an armhole is. I have maybe he meant the pits of their arms, speaking out of their armpits, as those sort of people did from several parts of their bodies and even from their secret parts. Oh, a pagan prophetess speaking from her vagina. Oh, that's just wonderful. Or maybe from her anus. <laughs> so this is uh, these demonic type prophetesses are disgusting. Well, anyway, that's where the term came from, the spirit of prediction. It seems so innocuous in the English, but it's a python spirit this girl had. And so she's predicting people's fortunes, and the, the owner of the slave girl is, make, is charging for those fortunes, and he's making a bunch of money. Now, whether the fortune-telling was successful or not, whether she predicted the future successfully or not, is not known, as the NIV Study Bible says. It's possible that she was speaking the truth, though. As Adam Clark says, quote, Satan will sometimes conceal himself under the guise of truth that he may the more effectually deceive. And, of course, that's true. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the next verse, verse 17, to, to which we will turn now, we will see that the slave girl was speaking the truth under the control of her python spirit of prediction. Acts 16, verse 17 says this, As she, the slave girl, followed Paul and us, that's Luke. That's why he says us, because it's Luke talking. He wrote the book of Acts. Paul, Silas, Luke, and Bar and us. Paul and Silas, Luke, and Timothy. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. Well, as I said, she's speaking the truth there. They were slaves of God, and they were proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, by the way, this us, that's the end of the we section here. Remember, Luke started saying we at Troas on the way while they, they were still in Asia and they crossed on over into Europe, across the Hellspot. And then he starts saying we and he gets all the way here to Philippi and he says us. And that's the last time he does it. Now, does that mean that he stayed there in Philippi as Paul and Silas and Timothy went on? Well, apparently so. I found such an opinion from a website which I'm not familiar with, so I won't quote it, but let's put it this way. It looks like he stayed there ministering in Philippi. So when they left, it was Silas, Luke, and Timothy. Excuse me, Paul, Silas, and Timothy that left Luke staying behind in Philippi. Again, this is speculation. I don't know. Now, when the slave girl said that the apostles were the slaves of the Most High God, that reminds us of another situation where a demon pointed out, 
that Jesus was the most high God, or that, excuse me, that God was the most high God. Mark 5, 7, this is the demoni, the Gadarene demoniac situation. And he cried out with a loud voice. The demon cried out, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So even the demons knew that God was the most high God. It was a common term used by the Jews, by the way, for Yahweh, the most high God, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, however, the Most High God is a term that's neither used by Christians nor Jews, just the demons, interestingly, probably coincidentally. Now, the girl speaking the truth, as I said. These apostles are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Why would the slave girl speak the truth? Now, here's some great speculations here. I'll start with John Gill. She just figured it out on her own in her, in her natural flesh, not with a demon. Or she had a divine impulse from God because God wanted the truth to be known. John Gill speculates. Speculation number three. She said it because she was afraid of Paul. She was expressing her fear. Oh my gosh, you're spe- Paul, you're speaking from the Most High God, and I'm using demons, and I'm st- and demons are scared of God. Could have been that. That's speculation number three by John Gill. Speculation number four. Maybe she was trying to flatter Paul. Maybe trying to coax some money out of him, maybe. I don't know. That's speculation number four. Speculation number five. We really don't know why. She was speaking the truth. That's a good one. That's John Gill's also. But now here's another good one. This is from Adam Clark. The girl could have been trying to destroy the reputation of the apostles in the eyes of the Jews because the Jews hated magic and familiar spirits. And when a python spirit demonic prophetess starts talking about, hey, these guys are speaking salvation, what's the Jew going to think? Oh, really? So you've got your God, Jesus, is using demons to proclaim the truth about Jesus. Now, why should we believe you? You're using demons to prophesy. That's not a bad idea from Adam Clark. That would hurt the apostles' reputation in the eyes of the Jews, but also in the eyes of the Gentiles. Hey, we've got our own fortune tellers, our own prophets. We're using the demons to speak the truth. truth. Why do we need you? We can find our salvation on our own. Why do we need you to tell us? So either way, it could be the demons were trying to taint the ministry of the apostles by associating the apostles with demons now that might also answer in luke 4:41, where jesus said demons were coming out of many shouting and saying you are the son of god but he would rebuke them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the messiah in other words jesus didn't want his name proclaimed the son of god by demons that might give his ministry a bad name give himself a bad name we move on to Acts 16 verse 18 And she, this is the slave girl with the demon spirit, the python spirit, she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated and turning to the spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Now, many days, this probably meant as Paul was walking down to the river, or maybe where he was just walking around evangelizing, I don't know, but this girl is apparently following him. Jameson Fawcett and Brown speculate was every day as the apostles went from Lydia's house back to the place of prayer. And, of course, the women in Lydia's house might have been going with them to the place of prayer. Maybe other people gathered around. Maybe they're evangelizing. I don't know. But the slave girl followed. Now, this is an interesting thing. Why did Paul put up with this for so long? The girl's yelling at him, you know, hey, you're preaching the way of salvation, the most high God. And he just put up with it. He put up with it. Why did he do that? He was obviously aggravated because he, he, he says he was greatly aggravated. Verse 18 says that. And he turned around to the spirit and said, get out of you. Get out of this girl. Why did he wait so long? Well, the only speculation I can find for that is that the spirit would completely manifest itself as it kept on saying 
what it was saying over and over again, it be, and it, w- it became very obvious that there was a battle now between the demon and Paul. And so when Paul finally cast the demon out, there would be a huge defeat for the devil and a great victory for Christ. I don't know if that's the reason or not. Maybe he just didn't want to take the time to do it. But I can't imagine that either. I don't, I don't know why it took so long to do it. Maybe it was because he knew there would be a big uproar, which there was, as we'll see in just a minute, when the man lost his source of income, when the girl couldn't prophesy demonically anymore. Maybe Paul knew that they would, he would be getting a lot of opposition, and he says, it's not worth the trouble right now. I want to go down to the place of river, and I want to evangelize. I want to teach. I want to do my ministry, and I don't want to be involved in a big uproar. That could very well be it. Well, for whatever reason, Paul finally got greatly aggravated. I guess he decided it's worth the uproar because I can't stand this anymore. And he turned to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, you know, this is what I tell, especially in China, you know, that everybody, there's demons everywhere in China and people are scared of demons. And I constantly say, look, you're a Christian. The demons are scared of you. You are not supposed to be scared of the demons. Paul wasn't scared of the demon. He just turned around and said, the name of Jesus Christ, get out of her. It's a great pattern. You know, if you ever cast out demons, that's a simple way to do it. In the name of Jesus Christ, get out. I've seen it done several times. I, I, not that I would like to do this as a full-time profession because, well, you know, you talk to anybody that has a ministry in this. It reminds me one time somebody said his wife was complaining because he didn't do the dishes. And he says, well, that's not my ministry. Washing dishes is not my ministry. That sounded kind of bad. But it's the same thing about casting out demons. That's... I'm kind of glad that's not my ministry. I've done it before, about once or twice, but it was such a horrific experience. It was tiring, and, well, it was it was rough. That I, Somebody else needs to do that, in my humble opinion, but somebody needs to do it. It's a tough job. Somebody needs to do it, though. People do pick up demons through the occult and through drugs and through homosexuality and all kind of ways you can get demons, and... And they should be cast out. Now, there's an interesting thing here. Usually, you don't cast out a demon unless the person wants the demon to be cast out. This girl right here, she didn't show any desire to have the demon cast out. Paul just turned around and says, get out. I'm tired of you. So I guess I guess that that is an overstatement to say that always the demon needs to want, the, the demon-possessed person wants to be delivered before they're delivered. Because that didn't happen here. Well, our verse here in verse 18 says that Paul was greatly aggravated by this demon spirit why here's some options maybe he was angry because the people were being deluded by that demon spirit listening to their fake fortune fortunes being told that's john gill's speculation another gill speculation is this maybe the people maybe paul thought that this prophesying this girl was doing would convince the people that the apostles were in collusion with the demon i've already mentioned that and maybe that's what aggravated the fire out of him he says ah keep quit Quit telling the people that we are slaves of the Most High God because we don't want to be associated with a demon pronouncing that. Or maybe he just had compassion for the slave girl who was possessed of that demon. There's a lot of interesting stuff in verse 18. A lot of things that don't quite jump to the surface as to what's going on there. Now, you notice Paul used the name of Jesus Christ to cast out the demon. In my opinion, this is a good pattern for present-day exorcists to follow. You use the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, name means the full authority of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the shorthand way of saying in the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, using the name of Jesus Christ cannot be used as a talisman or a magic formula to magically cast out the demon. You need to have faith in who you're praying in and whose name you're praying. You need to have faith in the person of whose name you're praying in Jesus, not just the name 
like a like a magic formula. That's not what that verse means in the name of Jesus Christ. Abracadabra, you know, using a famous a formula to get something done. No. We turn now to Acts 16, verse 19. When her, the slave girls, owners saw that their hope of profit was gone. It's more than one owner. There was several, at least two. Saw that their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Well, what did they see? Well, they saw a quiet girl, quiet, composed, and not prophesying anymore. No prophesying, no fees, no money. Now, even though she was delivered, she apparently remained a heathen, according to Adam Clark. There's no indication of her conversion, he says. Adam Clark says if Lydia, excuse me, if the slave girl had been converted, the deliverance would not have been so notable. She probably would have gone with the apostles into Lydia's household. She would have kept quiet. And uh, even if the demon was still inside of her, she would have kept quiet because she would have been a believer. But being with a slaveholder who wanted her to prophesy, the slaveholder says, prophesy, I need some money, prophesy, I want some fees. And she couldn't prophesy anymore, which made it obvious that she had been delivered. In other words, if she had just gotten, if she had just gotten saved instead of delivered, but saved, gone into the Lydia's house, nobody would have noticed what had happened. But because Paul publicly cast that demon out, it was obvious she had been delivered from a demon. And of course, the owners were angry about it. So they took Paul and Silas. We don't know about Timothy and Luke. I guess they weren't present at the time. Paul and Silas are dragged to the marketplace. Why the marketplace? Because that's where the legal court of judicature was. The word means can also mean that, according to John Gill. The courts were in the marketplace, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. And since it was a public place, they would wanted to go there to excite a clamor against them, as Adam Clark says. Get the people riled up. Get some mob action going. Now, the slave owner's actions, dragging Paul and Silas to the authorities, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt the exorcism was entirely real. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. We have here a full and independent confirmation of the reality of the supernatural cure, since on any other supposition such conduct would be senseless. Well, of course. Of course they cast the demons out. Now, these authorities were Romans, of course, because Philippi was a Roman authority. Now, this is one of the times that it wasn't Jews that dragged the apostles to the Roman authorities. This was just some Gentile guy. We go down to verses 20 and 21 in Acts 16. Bringing them, as Paul and Silas, before the chief magistrates, they, the owners of the slave girl, said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Well, actually, they were speaking the truth. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the slave owners were saying the truth about Christianity because Christianity was not a religio licita, a religious, a, a licensed religion, a, a, a religion that was allowed under Roman law. The Jews were, but not the Christians. It was not a legal religion. So they appealed to the magistrates in a way that the magistrates might be interested in hearing their case. They also mentioned disturbing our city, <laughs> promoting customs that are not legal. That means talking about Jesus, not an illegal religion. That's one charge. The other charge is that they were disturbing in the city, and that would really get a magistrate interested because magistrates were extremely interested in keeping peace. They were, that was their job. You have a riot on your hands, the Jewish, the, the Roman authorities back in Italy would not be happy about it. So these slave owners were very smart as they brought their indictment to the magistrates. 
Another thing they did is they mentioned they were Jews. Why was that smart? Well, because Jews at the current time were odious in the sight of the Romans. Claudius had just kicked them all out of Rome. This is Remember, this second journey is between 49 and 51. Claudius in the early 50s had kicked all the Roman Jews out of Rome. Acts 18.2, we read this. Where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, this is Paul, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So Luke actually recorded this expulsion of the Jews by Claudius. And so these owners of the slave girls had a three-pronged attack on Paul and Silas. One, they're preaching an illegal religion. Two, they're Jews and they just got kicked out of Rome. And three, they're causing a riot. When they're causing a riot, really, disturbing the peace, really, how were Paul and Silas disturbing the priests? All they were doing was preaching the gospel, and it was the people who were, were reacting against them, including the sl- slave owners who got this mob worked up. They were the ones that were disturbing the city. They were the ones that were causing riots. And as usual, the Christians get blamed for what their opponents were doing. Reminds me in present-day America, you, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe because you're a Christian. And then... This peace-loving, tolerant LGBT community shuts down Christian restaurants, shuts down Christian uh, places, and demonizes Christians, marginalizes them, takes them before hate crime commissions, kicks them out of academic jobs. And you know the persecution of Christians is very real by the same people who are preaching toleration. So uh, that was the charge that the slave owners did. Notice they never once mentioned the disposition of their property. And that was the real reason they brought they were bringing Paul and Silas to the magistrates. They had lost money, and they wanted to get their money back. They didn't mention that. They came up with bogus charges against the Christians. We now go to verse 22 in Acts 16. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes, as Paul and Silas's clothes, and ordered them to be beaten with rods. So you see, these chief magistrates were trying to keep the peace. Instead, sat there and watched a mob attack Paul and Silas. Roman citizens Paul was, as he's going to point out later when they tried to get them out of town, sneak them out of town, before the Roman authorities found out about it. All right, so this mob attacked Paul and Silas. The chief magistrate stripped off the clothes of Paul and Silas and ordered Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods. This was one of three times Paul was beaten with rods. Second Corinthians 11.25, he says this, Three times I was beaten with rods. This is by the Romans. Three times I was beaten by the rods. He told the Corinthians that, and he told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, this. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered, and we were treated outrageously in Philippi. So there Paul mentions how he was treated. He calls it an outrageous treatment, which it is, which it was. I tell you, Paul was no shrinking violet. He was no shy violet. He was a very brave person. I know in China, you know, the church is about 70 to 80 percent women, and you ask why. Well, because women are more sensitive, and we're more nurturing, and we're more loving, and men, all they're interested in is money. You'd hear, you'd hear the girls say that a lot, the Christian women. And I thought, well, yeah, and now you got a reputation of the church being a sissy religion. In fact, in America, I've, I've heard the same thing. It's not as, the, the imbalance is not as much, but there are more women than men. We need men to act like men. Paul was a man's man. I mean, he was no coward. He was one of the bravest people you will ever want to see, as, all, as were all the apostles. So this idea of Christianity being a sissy religion only for girls is nonsense. Now, I mentioned that Paul was going to mention the fact that 
he was a Roman citizen as the Philippians tried to smuggle him out of the city. Let me read that verse for you, Acts 16, verse 37. That'll be in our next audio. But Paul said to them, They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they're going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul used his Roman citizenship to great advantage throughout his ministry, and that was one case. We'll talk about that in the next audio. Let's finish this audio up by reading verse 23. And after they, that's the magistrates, had inflicted many blows on them, on Paul and Silas, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Now, that's the famous Philippian jailer. Who is going to get saved? In our next audio, in the next few verses, they were told to keep Paul and Silas securely guarded. Now, John Gill speculates that the magistrates were planning to do further harm to Paul after they had examined them further the next day. Maybe so. It's not a good situation. Now, here's a good description of a typical Roman jail. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown quoting an earlier commentator named Housen. Quote, they were, quote, pestilential cells, damp and cold, from which the light was excluded and where the chains rusted on the prisoners. Not a not a Hilton, not a five-star hotel. Now, many blows that Paul and Silas had, the Jews had a limit of 39 stripes because the law said you could give 40 stripes, and they would always do 39 in case somebody miscounted. They didn't want to break the law. The Romans didn't have a limit like that. Who knows how many times they were clobbered with rods. And I've read, I don't have it with me. I wish I did, but I read somewhere a description of what it was like to be beaten by rods with the Romans, or by anybody, actually, but by, Rome, by Romans in particular. It was hellaciously awful. It was a terrible, terrible thing to be beaten by rods. These wounds that Paul and Silas received were not washed until the Philippian, the converted Philippian jailer did so after he was converted. Acts 16.33, he, the Philippian jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He did that before he received baptism from Paul and Silas. Now notice that in verse 23, we see that they were ordered, the Philippian jailer was ordered to securely guard the prisoners. That little detail was mentioned by Luke, probably, in my opinion, to show how great a miracle it was when they escaped because they were in under maximum security, if you will. So we'll leave this audio right here. I'll take it up next time with Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.